In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Every night before going to bed, the Father, the Prelate, has to lie prostrate on the ground and he reads the Psalm 50, the Miserere. This was established by our Father and for all his successors, in which he says, Miserere Deus segundo magnam misericordiam tuam. Et segundo multitudinum misericordiam tuam dele iniquitatem meam. Amplius lavabit ab iniquitate mea et abicato mea munda me. And it goes on for a while. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness. In your compassion, blot out my offense. O wash me more and more from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. A humble, contrite heart you will not spurn. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful prayer that ancient Jewish tradition places really on the lips of uh, King David who was called to penance with very severe words of the prophet Nathan who reproached him for his adultery with Bethsaida, Mishida, and also, of course, for killing her husband, Uriah. And at first, King David said, whatever, I'm okay. And uh, he didn't even realize that he had done bad, that he had done evil. And then, with those strong words of, of, of Nathan, he, he suddenly, his conscience spoke to him. For, his, for a while, his conscience had been hardened, but now, realized in that hymn suddenly came to his heart and he recited that hymn. I like to imagine that that somehow he wrote that hymn or it was transcribed sometime in the very moment in which he felt that that sorrow in which the prophet had made him acknowledge his own sinfulness. It's really quite a beautiful meditation on guilt and on grace. I mean, the two go together. And many of the musical scores of the Miserere dig up and try to try to help the listener of these hymns tap into this sense both of sorrow, of guilt, but also of God's grace. One of the most famous ones is the Allegri Miserere, this, this Italian composer whose name was Gregorio Allegri and uh, this is like 16th century or something and then he he had it uh, presented to the Pope in the 17th century and it was sung there in the Sistine Chapel and somehow 
they got like two choirs in there it was polyphonic, polyphonic and it was like the Pope would love to listen to the Miserere but he had very clear rules that nobody was allowed to copy that text or the, the notes of it or you know it was forbidden to transcribe it so the only people who could hear it were those in the choir and the Pope and I guess I guess his cardinals whoever else was there but the, the legend or the story I don't know if it's true but at, in, later on you know years later when he was only 14 years old Mozart was visiting in Rome and somehow he got invited to a service in the Vatican and he got to go into the Sistine Chapel and they sang the Miserere and he listened to it the polyphony was just wow so he just kept it here and the next day he transcribed it all from, mem from memory you know and uh, he made a few minor corrections. And later on, with that transcription, Felix Mendelssohn, who got it from Mozart, somewhere played it in London, and well, that was too late. It basically went viral, right? So, or that, the version of viral in those years. And, uh, and when you listen to that, it's a beautiful hymn, of course, and beautiful music. Who knows how much those composers indeed the singers, the choir the transcribers for that matter were filled with sorrow like King David was maybe they just thought it was beautiful music and indeed it is and probably today you can listen to it on your iPod or, and it's beautiful polyphony but does it does it have that beauty of moving a soul to be contrite could be that it just stays a beautiful song but not really something that it was meant to be, that is to move a soul to contrition, to confess, to conversion. So what must this really say to us as we say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. We preach, we have to read that every Friday in the, in the morning prayer, the loudest. You know, we... Misericordium Deus and uh, when I first received the breviary in Latin it was the Vulgate and then the Vulgate of course the translation by St. Jerome but then I don't know remember how it happened but we got a new translation of the Latin called the Neo Vulgate it was like supposedly better and we said okay we'll take that one and then when I read this Instead of saying misericordia I would like to emphasize Mania misericordia, your great mercy. We read it, I read it and it said misericordia Like they took away the maniam. Like what did you do with the maniam? It's maniam, it's great mercy. It's not just mercy, like mercy is just a, yeah, I had mercy too, but it's mania misericordia. So I asked the priest, what happened? And they took away the manyam. It's like taking away the car. You know, you can't. <laughs> but they took it away because they didn't want to, I don't know. That apparently the manyam was added through tradition, not actually by St. Jerome. And it was like it was like a superlative, right? It was like mercy is already, manyam is already great as it is. So you don't have to add more mercy. You know, like it's like kind of like 
not quite exaggerated, but like a superlative that is not necessary. Something like that, they told me. And I said, whatever, okay. <laughs> I wasn't quite convinced, let's say. <laughs> because uh, mercy by definition is, is huge. It's, you know, we could say God's mercy is huge. But it's true. By definition, God's mercy is huge. So you don't have to say that it's huge. But anyway, so so in our prayer now, we got a picture King David, who realized now that he's committed this grave sin, that he's committed adultery, he's murdered a man. This was, of course, very severe. And we might think somehow that this doesn't apply to us. You know, I, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. It's like I'm, I'm good. But of course we realize that the story ended well because David left us with this beautiful hymn of repentance that we can all live, that we can all recite, but above all that we must all experience. That is, whatever our state, whatever we're doing, we have to somehow experience this call of Nathan to conversion, to repentance. Even if we go frequently to confession, I mean, imagine if David had kept lying to himself about what he had done and never actually let his conscience stir him to confession. If he had never really owned up, Nathan was there to help him convert. And Nathan told him the truth that he needed to hear. Otherwise, he might have said, What? Who's Uriah? I don't even know who that is. You know, he didn't, like, he'd kind of forgotten. But he didn't forget. So we must see our call to conversion expressed for us. Well, not like the call of Nathan, but I would say it's expressed in our living frequent confession. That's how we have to live the misedere domine. Misedere me domine. And of course we know confession, frequent confession is, is an ancient practice in the church I mean at first it wasn't confession was not that frequent and it's with time that Christians came to understand the great value of this sacrament and for us priests in the work, hearing confessions is a dominant passion and so we have to love it why is it a dominant passion? because we're like brilliant and we know what to say? no, because because it's a dominant passion to see and to hear words of somebody who is in some way converting, who is in some way repenting, expressing an acknowledgement of God's mercy and desiring that mercy. That, that's, that, that's good. And in my experience as a priest, uh, the most moving times are hearing somebody truly repent. Truly repent. It's worth like hours in the confessional for that. Hearing people weep. Hearing people say, Father, it's been 30 years since I went to confession. And then as they start talking, you begin to hear the voice quiver. And they, they, they trudge up old memories and yet they do it not with fear. They do it with a sense of that they're speaking to Christ somehow and that God is listening to them and they're asking, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
That's why it's a dominant passion. I don't remember the context, but in some context, Pope John Paul II was speaking in some kind of a public audience where Don Alvaro was present, and he mentioned, maybe this was a prepared speech or what, but he, he said that the priests of the work have a special charism of confession or charism for confession. And how happy this made Don Alvaro when he heard that, just expressed like that in, in a public setting. It was the result of experiences that, of course, many people go to confession with the priests of the work, but ultimately also, like when you think about it, it's also because in the work we have a very special devotion to the, to the fatherhood of God. And that fatherhood is somewhere along the line expressed in having access to the fatherhood of God through, through the sacrament of confession. That's, the, that's where it is. Because it is God who forgives us through, the, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means that for us, being devoted to God's mercy is very essential for us. We, we also have to have an apostle of confession. We have to help people to go to confession. But we ourselves have to love that sacrament. Some people may be kind of duty-bound. They are, they are maybe often plagued by guilt. Uh, they have done certain things in a certain way. They think, and if you don't comply... If you don't line up all your ducks uh, in a certain way, if you made a mistake, uh, you're a reprobate. You know, you're you're not acceptable. It's it's the whole perennial danger of perfectionism that can slither into our soul. You know, if we think that to please God, so God is pleased with us, well, that would have to be the opposite of saddening God. So it's like happy face emoji as opposed to sad face emoji, you know. So so if we disappointed, sad face emoji. And we might be afraid that we're always getting these sad face emojis from, from God. And we can fear, we, we can kind of bring this fear to our minds and hearts, the, the very thing that we're trying to avoid. And Fear, now fear is a, is a negative feeling. Yeah. And fear, is, it's kind of opposite to our devotion to the to fatherhood of God. We cannot fear God the Father. We cannot have negative feelings like that. It's, it's interesting, I read that, that in the Bible, we find 365 expressions, the phrase, do not fear. Do not fear. So if we're fearing often, if it's a frequent uh, thing in our life, well, maybe we should read the gospel and, you know, the Bible. Do not fear in all its different variations. It's as if to say that the Lord wants us free from fear. And there is a form of fear that the Father warns us against, uh, he wrote about this at the beginning of his first letter in which he encouraged us to expose or present the ideal of Christian life, he said, the ideal of Christian life without confusing it with perfectionism. T. 
teaching others to live with our own weaknesses and to live with the weaknesses of others. Assume them with all their consequences and thereby live a daily attitude of hopeful abandonment based on divine filiation. It's connected, obviously, to the fatherhood of, of God. Mm-hmm. And, well, a holy person uh, fears offending God, mm-hmm. but he's also equally afraid of not reciprocating his love. So the fear is a fear of offending God, but it's not a fear of God. But, that's a holy person, but the perfectionist is afraid of not doing things well enough and therefore fears that God is angry. Fears that God is angry. And we have to seek to understand that holiness is not the same as perfectionism. Although it's true, we can sometimes confuse the two. We think perfectionism is a good thing we know holiness is a good thing. There's a famous uh, preacher in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards. He was one of these revivalist pastors and theologians in Connecticut. And he had a famous homily that you may have heard that had the famous title that we are. He said, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that that homily had a, a vast uh, influence. Um, this idea that we're that God is looking at us and He's choking us in His hands, and He's angry at us. He's looking at it, and He's getting beat red as He's looking at us because we're so we're sinners. And this revivalist theology—I mean, it's obviously Protestant nature—but you know, here's a passage I, I found. He said. The wrath of God burns against them, against sinners. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. The pit hath opened its mouth under them. You're there. Okay, get me out of here, you know. Get me out of here. You know, the pit is is opened. It makes me think of, for some reason it makes me think of Lord of the Rings, but... And so, for Jonathan Edwards, hell was a, a very real and horrible place that all unrepentant sinners were destined to go to. Of course, we don't deny that hell exists. But he had this he had this knack of kind of freaking people out about the very real possibility that we could go to hell. And and that's why it's it's important that we capture the expressions of of perfectionism in our life, in our work, in our friendships even. You know, how many times are we just like filled with anger when we when we see that we have let ourselves carried away, for example, by our passions. We get too passionate, maybe angry or sensual or we sin and we get angry at ourselves. 
that we are sometimes too weak to fulfill our simplest uh, resolutions or purposes. We've maybe made some resolutions during Lent and uh, first day, we don't do it. Second day, miss it again. And maybe we get angry at ourselves and we think, a bit like Jonathan Edwards, that we're like sinners in the hands of an angry God or that God is disappointed and maybe we could lose the hope that he's going to continue to love us and that we we can really live a Christian life hey God's not going to love me why would he love me I messed up and that's when sadness invades I mean King David mess, messed up majorly. But he said, I put the manyam in there. Right there. Manyam misericordiam too. <laughs> you know? And I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a hymn of sadness. It's not a sadness. They call it the misericordia. But it's a sin of true atonement and true seeking the fatherhood of God. And on those occasions, it's good to remember that, of course, sadness is an ally of the enemy. Sadness does not bring us closer to God, but rather uh, distances us from Him. And we begin to confuse our own anger or our tantrum with a supposed disappointment of God. We're angry at ourselves, and then we think, Therefore, we think God must be totally disappointed with me. But the origin of all this is that is not the love that we have for Him. The origin of all that, the sadness and all that stuff, it's it's not uh, that we really have love for Him. But it's really that it's really ultimately our wounded self and our in our unaccepted fr- fragility. We don't accept that we are weak. We don't. We just. Somehow we want to be perfect, or we think that that's the only goal. You know, when you hear our Lord say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we think, well, there you go, I have to be perfect. And we want to follow that, make it the rule of our life, and we run the risk of understanding be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, as meaning do everything perfectly. It's interesting how that there's a difference. Right? Do everything like perfectly. Make your bed perfectly. That there's not a line out of place, not a wrinkle. And we come to think that if I don't do everything perfectly, uh, I'm not going to please God. And therefore, I'm not an authentic disciple. I heard a story, I don't know if it's mythical or true or what, but um, our father was coming to a center, and uh, and so the, the the fellows there were getting ready, okay, the father's coming, oh my God, he's coming, he's coming. We have to see that this place is really clean, and so the mistrician passed, and they cleaned it up, and it was looking nice, and uh, in those days, you know, people smoked a lot, so there was like a, a coffee table in front of the sofa, and uh, there were four ashtrays on the table. 
So those are the days, you know, you sat down and that's how it was, you know, people, they, those days, the day we have no ashtrays. But anyway, those were the days. And, you know, I had one of the, my jobs was to clean ashtrays when I was in, <laughs> in Rome. That was what you had to do, you know. Limpiar ceniceros. That was, that was the... So anyway, so imagine a coffee table and they're waiting for our father to arrive. And one guy puts one one ashtray here, another one here, another one here, another one like perfectly lined up, like on the corners, right? Oh, he's gonna like this. He's gonna like this, you know. And sure enough, our father arrives, there's a get together, and our father looks at the table and he kind of takes it, shakes it up, and all this all the ashtrays kind of fly around and he says, That's better. Now that's that's more normal, right? <laughs> and I guess the guy who did that must have been uh, in hiding, you know, but, uh, you know, it's not to do everything perfectly. And that's what we may think when our Lord says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And He says, be perfect, but as your Heavenly Father is perfect, it's about the perfection that God opens to us by making us sharers in the divine nature, in our divine filiation. It's about the perfection, not of the ashtrays in the corners, but the perfection of eternal love, of the greatest love. As Dante said, love that moves the sun and the stars. Love that moves the sun and the stars, he said in the, in the, in the Divine Comedy. The same love that has created us free and has saved us while we were sinners. As St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, he's created us free and has saved us as we are sinners, as we were reprobates. So for us, perfection consists in living as children of God, aware of the value that we really have in his eyes, not so much in our eyes, without ever losing that hope and that joy that comes from feeling ourselves children of a good father, you know, that, that's why when we feel bad about ourselves, when we feel, you know, we messed up somehow, then go to the eyes of God. How does God really see me? Am I, you think God is sick, grabbing you by the throat and saying, you know, I'm, I'm angry. You are a sinner in the hands of an angry God. So, yeah, so faced with the danger of perfectionism, we can consider that pleasing God is not really in our hands. It's really in His hands. And that's why St. John says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us first. He loved us first. So we have to, you know, give up pointing out to God how he has to react to our lives. Now look at me here. Here I am. Because uh, we are creatures and, and that's why you know we must learn to respect his freedom without imposing on why or why he is not supposed to love us. You know, I, I paid the ticket so you're supposed to love me because I did what had to be done. In fact, he has shown us his love and therefore the first thing really he expects of us is that 
that we let Him love us. We just let Him love us. In His own way. Don Javier used to say that when he grew up, there was a big emphasis on guilt. But when he met the work, there was an emphasis on divine filiation. To trust in God who forgives. And that's a large part of what, uh, what struck him so much. So let us uh, ask uh, this capacity to, to really be anchored in this mercy of God because that's what will lead us to accept God's love for us through confession. There we let him love us as he wants. And we know he's always infinitely, infinitely merciful. And that's a large part of why we go to frequent confession, not to perfect our cheat sheet exactly as we want, but to let ourselves be imbued by God's love. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.